Bodies in the Bayous, a podcast by Morgan Kelly and Gretchen Scanlon, presents Season 4, Iola, Eroding Justice. Episode 2, Who Was Betty Cantrell? At the end of the last episode, we were talking about Tuesday, September the 30th, the morning that Betty Cantrell went missing from the dine-out cafe. As people started to wake up around town, there was a buzzing with news of Betty Cantrell's disappearance. Residences began to speculate about what could have happened, as some people reported hearing women's screams on both the north and south side of town. The shocking news of Betty's disappearance was being heard all around. People wondered, did she take off, go out of town? Did she injure herself and have to go to the hospital? Could she have ran off the road somewhere? Did she actually rob the cafe? Many residents who knew Betty would talk about who she was. So who was Betty Cantrell? Betty was born in Iola on February 5, 1941, and had lived there most of her life. Her parents were Raymond and Ketra Moore. Betty had one sister, Jean Ornelas, who was living in California at the time. Betty was always known by her short pixie hairstyle and later her cat cat eye glasses. As a young woman, she attended Iola High School till she was 17 when she met and married her first husband, Lauren Duffield, from Chanute, Kansas. Chanute's a town near Iola. He was attending the junior college. The college was in the same building as the high school, so they probably would have crossed paths with each other quite a bit. Although his parents had lived in Chanute, they had recently moved to Topeka right before the couple's wedding. The couple started their lives together in a two-story house located at 318 Buckeye Street in Iola. This house had been converted into apartments. Shortly after that, Lauren enlisted in the Navy and the couple moved to Norfolk, Virginia, where he was stationed. After a few years, the couple welcomed their first child, Robert Neal, on February 18, 1962. The marriage ended about a year after Robert was born. After divorcing Lauren, Betty and Robert returned to Iola. Shortly after returning, she met and married David Cantrell, a single father of two whose wife had passed away a few years earlier. The two blended their family together and made a home for themselves, moving to a house located at 821 North Street. At the time of her disappearance, the Cantrells had been married for about five years. They were raising their two children together, Robert was six, and Sherry, David's daughter from his first marriage to Kathleen, was ten. So on the morning of September 30th, word made its way around to Miss Bill Brewington, who lived in a house near the end of South First Street. Upon hearing the news, it reminded her that earlier that morning, around 10 a.m., she had spotted a car at the end of the block near the corner of Rock Street and First Street. It was hidden partially by Bush. The car parked that way seemed strange to her, yet it didn't alarm her at the time, until she heard about Betty. She reported to the police that her she had seen a car, that it was partially covered by brush near the railroad tracks at the end of First Street. 
Soon the police would arrive at that location and start to uncover one of the missing clues in Betty's disappearance, as the car was indeed Betty Cantrell's 1959 Ford Fairlane. It had been driven across the railroad tracks about 150 feet east up the railroad. When they opened the door, they noticed bloodstains in the car and on the ground nearby. Police located the keys to the, in the ignition and were able to determine that there was no damage to the car that made it inoperable. The keys for the Dinot Cafe were also like, located on the dashboard inside the car. Police said that a search of the soft ground around the car did not turn up footprints. However, police did announce publicly that there did not appear to be a struggle in the car or in the diner. A KBI agent would describe Betty as a quiet, reserved person with no known enemies or marital problems. Although they suspected foul play in her disappearance, Betty's husband, David Kentrell, was not a suspect or known to have any involvement, and they also did not suspect Betty's ex-husband of being involved in her disappearance. The area where the car was found is on the outskirts of town, Therefore, on one side of the road, you had, a, you had small houses, while on the other side, where the car was located, just beyond the railroad tracks, you would see trees and a large, a large field leading down to Elm Creek. A large concrete bridge, named the Kentucky Street Bridge, crossed over Elm Creek. Officers spread out and searched the nearby field to the bridge, searching for Betty. Help arrived from the KBI and surrounding law enforcement, and together they would knock on doors and ask if anyone has seen Betty. The next morning, Wednesday, October the 1st, 500 residents arrived at the location where Betty's car had been found. The town would spread out and begin to look for her. Searchers covered Elm Street from Kentucky Street Bridge west to the dam behind the cement plant. An airplane also circled the area for about five hours. Several boats were launched at the foot of this Kentucky Street Bridge. Other law enforcement agents in nearby towns have been notified of her disappearance and her photo was being circulated and was shown on Channel 7 News, the news station out of Pittsburgh, Kansas. By the end of Wednesday, it appeared that law enforcement was focusing on Elm Creek. They did not make a public announcement to us why. It was announced later that they had found Betty's earring that appeared to be torn from her ear, and a pool of blood, a rock with blood on it. These items were found across Kentucky Street, west of the Kentucky Street Bridge. This was the reason that they focused there. On Thursday, October 2nd, off-duty police officers, the Allen County Sheriff's Office, and members of the Fish and Game arrived at Elm Creek and began to probe the water, looking. What were they looking for? It does seem like they were looking for a body. On Friday, October 3rd, 1969, around 12.30 p.m., a body of a woman was found a mile north of the Country Club near the town of Gas by members of the Harold Gay family. She was partly on the grass and partly in the ditch. The body was that of a woman who had been, been beaten so severely in the head that her features were unrecognizable. The woman they found was dressed in brown jeans and a black sweater and appeared to have dark brown hair. Betty's hair was light. Dr. George Detar was 
called to the scene, and he said the woman had been dead for about 10 to 15 hours. Further up the road from the body, police found bloody cleaning tissues on the road and an empty box. Officers began to believe that they had not found the body of Mrs. Cantrell. The realization of that horror that they had found a body of another woman was beginning to sink in when David Cantrell was brought to the scene to identify the body around 3 p.m. and said this was not Betty. If not her, then who was it? Later that evening, Friday, October 3rd, about 5.30 p.m., Jimmy Maloney went out for a motorcycle ride. He went over the Kentucky Street Bridge, which was not passable by car, but was able to be passable by motorcycle. He noticed a body floating in Elm Creek. The body was that of Betty Cantrell. She was still fully dressed in her waitress uniform. Her body had been in the water several days, and she was severely decomposed. She was later positively identified by her husband by the jewelry that she was wearing. And even later that evening, the body of the second woman who had been discovered near the country club was identified as 14-year-old Sally Hutton, a junior high school student in the ninth grade. Both bodies were taken to Wichita for autopsy. Betty Cantrell's body was severely decomposed, but Dr. Robert Kelly, a Wichita pathologist, performed an autopsy on Betty. The autopsy revealed that she had died from drowning. He decided this due to the fact that she had creek water in her lungs. Additionally, she had two skull fractures to the back of her head that occurred close to the time of her death. She had one blow to the face that had loosened her teeth. This was believed to be caused earlier. Officers believed that the blow to her face happened while she was inside the cafe. She had been beaten badly, had a broken finger on her left hand, bruises on her right hand, and an injury to her knee. The medical examiner determined, though, that she had not been sexually assaulted. Evidence along the South Kentucky Street, near the old Kentucky Street Bridge, indicated that, to law enforcement that Betty was forced into the water across from Kentucky Street, near a large hay field on the west side of the road. This location is the location where they had found earlier the rock and the blood. From that point, her body had floated a, for a short distance downstream to where it was recovered. On October 4th, the Chanute Tribune reported that authorities believed that both murders were committed by the same person.
All right, everybody. So that's going to kind of bring us into our discussion part of the um, episode. Uh, what we're about to bring you is going to be an audio clip from Joyce Maley. She met with us when we went to do interviews and she's um, in the audio clip you're about to hear. She's going to kind of bring to you what she saw as a young girl when they discovered Betty's body as she was there. We lived when you went across that bridge there it went up to a hill and that's where Jim lived right there and then we went down the hill and we lived down here like down a little road and then we lived down there across the creek like we could see pretty much see the creek went on my mopeds and someone I can't remember if Jim called and said they found that he found Cantrell's body because we were neighbors and so mom said don't go there but i did and i went on the bridge and i watched him take her out of the and put her in a bag and she looked bloated to me but i watched him put her in the bag and that pretty much it i I thought she was bloated she was face down and i i from what i could see and it wasn't that far i mean you know it looked like you know how when something swells like your hair would be like like your head swells then your hair looks like it's not all together. That, that's what it looked like to me. And it also, it looked like she didn't have any legs, but they must have had them up under there or something because I was like, whoa. And they may have already got that that part into the bag I got there because I don't, I don't know, but that's what it looked like to me. So that's pretty much. Thank you, Joyce. Um, I know it's always difficult to remember those things. And uh it does seem very fresh in your memory, you know, like it just happened to you probably because it, you know, as a young child, it was impressionable. So we do appreciate you taking the time to meet with us. So, and I definitely echo that. It was very helpful to have the residents from Iola, Joyce, Angela, Eileen, um, and Kim all with us to give us their insights there. Because if we had gone down to that area where the car was found, and well, first of all, I don't think we ever would have found that bridge. No, definitely not. You know, to give you some insight of where the Kentucky Street Bridge is located, it's no longer there. And um, in order to to kind of find this location, we had to go through private property. Mm-hmm. And so that was kind of a interesting story of us going through this private property. Um, the friends of ours from Iola were like, oh, it'll be okay if he yeah, shows up. Definitely, if we had gone by ourselves, we were not, we would have never been able or comfortable entering private property. Well, we weren't from there. <laughs> I mean, definitely not. So, um, yeah, that was definitely an interesting part of it was that now it is private property. It wasn't then. Yeah. Um, and there was people living there, and they did actually come and say hi to us. Yeah, they did actually come and say hi to us, which was, was nice to actually have them helping us because, uh, you know, um, kind of, Diffuse the situation a little bit. If if we were just like we were out of town or podcasters walking across your property, it might have gone a little bit different because we had that local uh, flair with us that helped out. We did not walk all the way down to the Kentucky Street Bridge, but I think um, both of us tend to be allergic to poison ivy, and uh, so it, it is covered. 
in that area in in brush and poison ivy but friends of ours did walk down there and give us a good image of where it is located and when you look at this on a map and you sit there at the location where the car is you seem to get in your head that they're really close by mm -hmm. Um, but in actuality, the location where the car was found is about a five to seven minute walk to the footings that are left of the bridge, which would have been where her body was found. Yeah. And, you know, we are fortunate that our friends that did go down there, they actually recorded it. If it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have been able to see it firsthand. Right. You know, and when we watch that footage, you know, I'm like having a hard time with it visually because you do realize at that point like when they're walking there that's at ground level where betty's body was found right because the bridge is not there but you can definitely see like what is it like the pillars the yeah. pillars yeah where the bridge once would have stood mm -hmm. and it was it was quite a large bridge and the other question that we've had and we really can't quite find any answers to was how much water was in the creek at the time when we're looking at the creek from our location on this piece of private property which would have been part of the hay field mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. when we're looking at that location it seems like the creek is is just a little tiny trickle but when you when the creek curves and goes back there it's actually two creeks coming together so it's not that little trickle that we're seeing. It gets much wider and deeper. And the amount of water that was in it at the time had to be significantly different than what we were looking at. That yeah, day. but it was so crazy, too, because when we were looking at the video um, from where they physically walked, there was more water than where we were. And we're kind of walking um, down toward more where the um, private property and the house that sits there now was it was completely dried up i mean if we right. could have found it but what's weird about that there was no easy way down there or i think we would have actually been down there because it wasn't like overtaken with brush either right you know but there was i mean there was no easy way down there when <laughs> you're getting down you may not get up i don't know um but where they were you definitely saw water in that video where, where we're located up there at Kentucky Street is where Rock Creek flows into Elm Creek. Mm -hmm. So Elm Creek kind of comes in from a different direction. So that kind of leads us one of those great questions again, which is where was Betty's body originally put in the water? Right. What we do know from investigators is that Betty's body was put in the water further upstream so when they're looking and searching and we talked about them searching from the kentucky street bridge all the way to the cement plant that's from the kentucky street bridge downstream so parts of the reasons of why they didn't find her body and all of that searching becomes clear because they're not able to search or they're not searching upstream mm -hmm. and for a long time we talked about the car was probably got parked and she got out of the car and that's where the altercation happened you have talked to me quite a bit about you're thinking no that the altercation did happen farther up toward the hayfield right and then he moved the car whoever whoever killed her moved the car down to the location 
And we wondered in talking about that, if maybe that was to try to get attention away from where her body actually was. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I often wondered, I mean, and I'll just talk briefly on this is if he thought, or the perpetrator thought at the time, you know, like he needs to get away from where he put her, but get away from that car as well. And if he puts it there, it kind of brings people or law enforcement's attention to where the car is and less away from town because it is still in walking distance. Right. You know, so, I mean, you could be walking down the street there and that's not suspicious. Being in her car would be suspicious. Well, and I think it kind of, you know, to me answers that question about if she got out of the car right there where the car was located, there were so many houses. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, and but if the car was located farther down where she actually was pulled out of the car and then beaten with the rock, then in that hayfield, she might not have had a chance to go toward a house or maybe somebody didn't hear her screaming because she's farther away from the houses. Yeah, that's true. Um, But kind of the way that Joyce described where her house was and Jim's house was um Jim Baloney the one that found the body you know <laughs> it was I mean, it all seems right there to me but mm-hmm. you know it's not exactly no because you know, but you can visualize where it would be but when you're visualizing where it is it, you're thinking it's right across the bridge that's right in front of you and when you really experience it being there you realize that that bridge is so much farther down on kentucky than where you're actually seeing that car well and that creek bed is wide i mean it's 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 pretty wide you know and maybe they would have heard screaming you know if they had their windows open or um or possibly but the idea of how close the car was to the houses was the one thing that i was like that seemed very close. It did. But when you think about the distance with the hayfield and then bring, being dragged down to the creek, I think she's much farther away where she's killed from houses. Well, sure. And I think if you were doing that, you know, and then you're in this car, you're just like, okay, I'm going to get far away from her. But you couldn't go much farther than that driving that car because then you're in town. You well, know what I mean? Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, you almost have to ditch it there or you're going to be seen in the car. And I, I, I agree with you. Mm-hmm. And if, if whoever killed her's idea was I'll ditch it farther down the road so that it throws off the cops about where her body's located, then in all fairness, that was successful. Right. That was definitely successful of moving that car, you know, um, which is relatively a short distance. Um, but it makes a big difference. Yeah, well, it's definitely more upstream than where she was found. Right. For and certain. To give people an idea, when <clears throat> when we talk about how small of a distance this is, the cafe is only located 1.4 miles yeah. away from <laughs> the uh, Kentucky Street Bridge. So when we get into this distance of where the car is located from the Kentucky Street Bridge, it's really roughly about three blocks yeah and um listeners you have to hear me out here when gretchen first had talked about this town she's definitely visited there more than i had at this point she made it seem like they're driving around town it was like all far apart it's not listeners it is not it is a hop skipping away it is (laughs) 
literally you're talking blocks because we literally had kim who was in the car with us today that that footage was taken um who was like i can just meet y'all there like she's gonna walk there and to me i'm like you're gonna walk there but it's one point something miles right Right. it's an eight minute walk (laughs) on a bad day you know what i mean so listeners let me tell you it is small and it is very close together yet the location where this happens seems so far from town like from the square from the dine out cafe right from the dine out i mean it is so crazy um and and i actually you know in order to try to find some distances here kind of googled back and forth about how far how long it would take you what what they're saying is that it's a five minute drive from the cafe I think it's a five-minute drive obeying every traffic light and every well that doesn't exist. There aren't a whole lot of traffic lights, <laughs> but but obeying all the stop signs and and the speed. But you could have sped down there a lot quicker than five minutes. Absolutely. You know, if if your intention is to get down to that location because you've abducted this woman, you could have gone a lot quicker. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there was a whole lot of law enforcement running around to these different locations either. So I think it would have been relatively easy to, to get there relatively quickly. I think more like three minutes. Well, yeah. And I minutes. think law enforcement, in my opinion, was actually probably at the dine out cafe at the time this was happening. So, cause you're talking the response time there was 30 minutes max. In later episodes, <laughs> I think, you know, we definitely will nail down that a little bit more because I don't know. I've just wondered if... I thought it was my personal opinion. Here, I know, but... I know. And, right, if she's abducted at 4.45 and then by 5 o'clock somebody coming... It just... It seems like such a short period of time for me that that all of this happens in 15 minutes, but it's possible. You know, one thing I never thought about until just right now. So forgive us listeners. Cause it's kind of like side conversation. What if this is all happening and he's heard the police cars being dispatched and stuff, because you would hear that from the dine out cafe to where this is happening, where the body's being ditched. And that's what makes him get out of the car. You know what I mean? Like you would hear like, Oh shit, I'm definitely not going to drive this car back in town there's commotion now oh i think that's definitely a good point Mm -hmm. and i do believe that she was killed within at least at least a half an hour Mm -hmm. after she was abducted max an hour uh yeah i don't i don't think it's an hour i'm saying max um and so, well, that's the discussion on kind of the car and the location of the car. For us, it seemed like it, they were so close together that I didn't think anybody ever got back in that car and drove it again. Yeah, I don't think so either. But listen, the town of Iowa, please get back to us. Let us know like what you think on this because we're just kind of right. throwing ideas out there. And I mean, we'd love to hear from you guys. So yeah, we're definitely looking for people who live there uh-huh. to kind of discuss over the years what they've heard. Um, about this situation, about where the car was located, about where her body was located. So anybody who wants to email us um, at, again, it's bodies in by use at hotmail.com or contact us on Facebook and we'll get back a hold of you. That would be great. Um, 
a couple other things to discuss. Obviously, you know, now we have Sally Hutton, whose body has been discovered outside of town that we talked about today. But I think for the most part, we're going to cover Sally on a, more episodes coming up. And um, so we're not going to cover her a whole lot on the discussion today. But I will cover one thing that always comes back is this idea of the tissues. No, the tissues. So, friend. <laughs> okay, and and here, listeners, this is where we're gonna really need y'all's feedback because the tissues is something that we kind of go round and round about, right? right? It's an awkward thing, and yeah, I guess we're just gonna have to discuss it. So the tissues are located where at the dine out cafe outside the dine out cafe where her car is located and i believe their tissues in her car mm -hmm. and then now you have this whole thing with the unfortunate um death of sally and you have what they're now referring to as cleaning tissues located at that spot and a box mm -hmm. and it's just I mean, okay, it is almost the most unrealistic thing that I have convinced myself this person has OCD, right? Because it is almost just like, it's weird. Yeah, like, like somebody's fix, cleaning up. Yeah, like, but with tissues, which is not really effective. If you're talking about Kleenex, come on, you put any kind of liquid on a Kleenex, it's dissolving. <laughs> I know. Yeah, okay. But at the Dine Out Cafe, I've always thought that, you know, Betty, because she had been hit in the face first, that she grabbed the Kleenexes to kind of stop that bleeding. And then, you know, as she's abducted and hauled out there, then those get dropped. But then with Sally, those cleaning tissues or whatever they are, um, because they come in a box, so I don't think they're paper towels. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But those, the only person who could be using those there would be the person who killed her. Mm-hmm. Who would well, be cleaning up. And you have the tissues in the alley of the in the back of the Cantrell's house. Right, which is, is has been reported through that anonymous or that mm -hmm. tipster. Mm -hmm. Not using their name, but... um who said, you know, they woke up that morning and there were the tissues back there. I mean, if I wake up in the morning, like I have an alley behind my house, right? right. If I wake up and see tissues back in there, I'd be like, what in the world happened back here last night? I wake up and see dirty tissues in my alley, though. I'm going to be like, oh, great. Somebody had a bloody nose and didn't clean up after themselves. And now the tissues are blowing all around. I don't know that I'm going to go to murder. Really? So my mind totally goes somewhere else with that. <laughs> like... Anyways, um, yeah, I don't know. Let us know what y'all think about the tissues. It's kind of weird if anybody that's listening can give us maybe more information on, like, tissues versus uh, paper towels during the 69s, 69s, yeah, maybe 70s. Boxes. Who knows? I always assumed they were in, like, you know those little tissues that come in, like, the little... Yeah, like, like Kleenexes. The travel... The travel ones are coming like those little... Not when they say the word box. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Okay. Sorry, so, listeners, long stretch. Yeah. 
um, we've kind of gone off on that, but um, thank you again for joining us and we really appreciate it. Hope this has gotten some discussion going from some of our listeners about what they think too. Uh, and we are putting together our next episode as we speak. Thank you guys. Thanks everyone for joining us today. We want to give a special thanks to the Iola community for all their help and support in making this season possible. Special thanks to Angela Henry, our local host. Bodies in the Bayous is an independent podcast produced and created by Gretchen Scanlon and Morgan Kelly. Research sources include the Iola Register, the Wichita Eagle, and the Parsons Sun. Music provided by Spotify. Technical assistance by Emma Kelly. Studio assistance by Catherine Alvarez. If you have any questions or tip about this case, email us at bodiesinbayous at hotmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Bodies in the Bayous. We'd love to hear from you. Please leave us a review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Special thanks to the Hutton and Cantrell families for their support. Our ultimate goal is for these families to have some answers. If you have messages of support, we are happy to pass them on to the family if you email us at bodiesandbayous at hotmail.com.